Welcome to Inside the Founder Studio. We're a podcast dedicated to uncovering the grit that make founders, entrepreneurs, and innovative thinkers tick in one of the most crucial industries on the planet, supply chain. To learn more, you can check us out at InsideTheFounderStudio.com. But for now, let's hand it to our host, Ryan Schreiber. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Inside the Founder Studio. I'm Ryan Schreiber. And today I've got uh, somebody I'll call a friend of me because he's a Wolverine uh, in Matt Vogrich of Modern Logistics Solutions, although y'all probably know it as Molo. Uh, Matt, you're the president and COO of Molo, right? Thanks for jumping on today. Um, Why don't you go ahead and introduce Molo for anybody who's listening and might not be familiar? So Molo is a 350-person freight brokerage in Chicago, Illinois. We started in July 2017 under the the assumption that we could come in and massively disrupt the transportation industry. Uh, We felt like, first and foremost, we wanted to focus on our people, build an incredible culture, build a group of people that believed in in our brand, in our mission, um, and we work for each other would work for each other as hard as they would work for their drivers or their customer partners. Uh, We truly felt like we could build that type of culture and get a group of people that are bought into uh, building a billion dollar modern logistics company that, that does it the right way end to end. Um, From there, we thought that, and, and and part of our um, ideology, I guess, is we want to treat the drivers with as much respect as we want to treat each other. They have a really hard job. Driving all around the country, I don't it's like. It's gonna be the hardest job, dude. I don't like driving three hours, you know, um, to 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 Wisconsin. I, I get sore and like I just don't like that experience. Um, and they do that I all day. I like driving, but I don't like people bothering me. You know what I've said about being a, why the drivers have the worst job is they have like fifteen bosses. Everybody's calling them every five minutes, like asking them what the fuck is going on. And you know, there's a reason these guys got into trucking and most or and women, right? And most of them got into trucking because they want to be left the fuck alone and be their own boss. And now they've got six different bosses. But um, go ahead, keep going. Yeah, talk more about Molo. Yeah, man. And well, and like they're driving away from their family in a lot of instances. Um, and and you know, that's hard. And to drive all around the yeah. country and um get yelled at from all different angles, and um, it's just a tough job. And so yeah. You know, again, build the right culture, build the group of people that want to rally around what you guys are doing, take care of your drivers and build a loyal network of those folks that really like working with the people they're talking to every day. Uh, if you do those two things, service the heck out of your customer's business, follow through on your commitments to them. I mean, that was the premise for why we started this business. We thought we could execute those three different buckets and then layer in really quality technology, people first, technology second to make them as efficient uh, as possible so they can do their jobs really well, which is build relationships on either side of the coin with the carrier and the customer. That's who we are. Um, like I said, 350 people in Chicago. We're having a ton of fun doing it. We're moving about $40 million in freight a month. Um, I think that'll be our, our February number when it's all said and done, maybe 35 this month. But it's uh, it's been a lot of fun and we've got an awesome team. Yeah. It's, um, you know, my friend, Joe Lynch, who, you know, though, haven't spoken to, uh, is, is often, is often, you know, kind of, uh, when he's talking to business owners and leaders, they, he asked the question, did you sign of think you could do it better? Do you see a hole in the market? You guys thought you could do it better. Treat, treat your drivers better, treat your shippers better, 
Um, and like that, you know, that's kind of was your thesis getting into, we'll get into like why you started Molo and all that kind of stuff as we go on. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation because your background is super interesting. Um, and it'll be really cool to talk about sort of some of your experiences before your professional life and then with Molo as well. So, um, I want to talk about success. I want to talk about failure. I want to talk about imposter syndrome, as I told you. Why don't you start by kind of telling us what was it like being little Vogrich? Like, what was it when you were, you know, what was it like growing up? Where did you grow up? Um, you know, what was your early life like? I grew up in Lake Forest, Illinois, uh, which is actually where uh, Andrew Silver grew up, which is where Coyote was founded. So I had a bunch of friends that went and worked there and and knew what a, I knew what a freight brokerage was, but I wasn't a freight broker until you know, four years ago when I started this thing. Um, but I grew up in Lake Forest, Illinois. Both my parents worked. Um, and, you know, I, I respected the way that they raised me and, you know, worked their asses off every day um, and came to every single one of my, and I played basketball my whole life. Uh, so basketball is my thing from when I was three until I was 22 years old, um, you know, and, and, um, Looking back on it, I probably wasn't as appreciative of, of how hard my parents worked and came to every single one of my games and all the money and travel they put into me doing that all around the country. Um, but it, you know, it made me who I am today and learned how to compete every day. And I loved it. I loved doing that every day. I love working with the team and winning and losing. And um, that was my life for kind of the first 22 years there. Um, after after that, I so so in high school, um Lake Forest, Illinois, public school. Hoops is my thing. I, I actually um, married the the woman I went to prom with uh, in high school. Little fun fact, personal bit there about my life. Um, we have a child coming in in June. Uh, oh, in congratulations! Four months this here. Is, I this is breaking follow. news. We're breaking this on podcast here, man. I mean, some people know that, but you asked me about my life story, and that's a big piece yeah. of it coming up here. Yeah, yeah. But. Um, Lake Forest High School, went to the University of Michigan, played basketball there. Um, after hoops, went to IBM, and then I started freight brokerage when I was 27. All right, slow down, slow down, slow yep. down, slow down. Back it off. All right, because you're getting ahead of yourself, which is fine, which is cool. So you grew up in Lake Forest. You played high school. You know, you played basketball was your life. Did you meet Andrew? So Andrew Silver is the CEO of, of, of Molo. Um, did you meet him growing up, or did you meet him at University of Michigan? I met him at – Michigan. I don't think we ever knew each other in high school. Um, he went to Lake Forest Academy. I went to the the public school. So we went to different high schools. We went to different middle schools and grade schools. I didn't know him, but he was probably, you know, two miles down the street. Never knew him, never yeah. talked to him. Um, and so we met at Michigan. What was it like? So you grew up in Lake Forest and when you were growing up in Lake Forest, Lake Forest had a pretty big resident, right? In Michael Jordan. What was it? Was I don't know. Was it was it was there anything like was it weird being a basketball player living in Lake Forest in the late 90s early 2000s and you know Michael Jordan you know being there and a basketball player I, I don't know was there anything there like was that different than being a basketball player anywhere else you think I don't know I mean Chicago right, is cool. like, Chicago's a basketball mecca my middle name is Jordan uh after Michael Jordan so like my parents my dad loved hoops and Michael Jordan was like you know the guy in in the early 90s I think Michael Jordan actually lived in Highland Park, not Lake Forest, but down the street. Just wanted to fact check you there. Um, I mean, Jordan obviously was, you know, someone I looked up to when I was little and and respected the way he competed every day and won championships and 
my middle name being after the guy I, I wanted to be like Mike. Everybody did. I obviously fell a little short of that goal, but like, yeah, it's cool having the, you know, your idol and the best basketball player of all time grow up uh, or, or live down the street and play for the Bulls when you're eight years old. So that was cool to watch. I mean, I would argue that magic is, you know, Don't, I'm a little, I'm a little right. biased. You're wrong. Uh, I'm trying to Google right now as we talk if Jordan's house is in Lake Forest or, or Highland Park because I don't like being wrong. But um, I'm pretty sure it's in Highland Park. I mean, I'm from Florida. What the fuck do I know? But did you, did you watch? Have you? I mean, I'm sure you've watched. Um, I'm sure you've watched The Last Dance. Did you? Yes. I'm just I'm just watching it right now for the first time. Like I I like to wait until things are like done before I can watch them. So I've been watching it recently and like guy is just so mad about everything it's it's kind of hilarious right but you know it's it's what i think is really interesting about michael jordan is he he's not the most talented basketball player of all time right i mean you, when you watch if you watch the tiger woods documentary um on hbo he's not the most talented golfer you know that's ever lived but their drive was something that was a little bit different you know as somebody who was a high performing athlete you have to have, obviously you have to have incredible drive. What do you have a story of like the Michael Jordan getting cut from the sophomore team basketball, you know, not making varsity sophomore. Do you have anything like that in your, in your story when you were growing up that, that kind of helped drive you or put a chip on your shoulder to reach the next level? Or what was your kind of big motivation when you were a kid to be in a high performing role? So I like arguing and being right just like you do. I Googled it also. It's it's 3,700 Point Lane, Highland Park, Illinois. Just, okay. just, to, just to make okay. sure you're, we're on the, we're some potty uh, count. Um, I don't well, have the I mean, same. It was the, it's good. I mean, we've known each other for like a year now. So like, this is the first time you've gotten over on me, which is great. I mean, congratulations. You're one for what? 700 at this point? Great. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's true, but we can move on. I don't have a – I also would argue that he wasn't the most talented basketball player ever, but that's a whole other thing I, I just don't agree with. He was up there. Um, oh, certainly. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, but, but in terms of like that raw – that like just that raw talent, you know, that raw dough, you know, there uh, – you know, what made Jordan great was his draw. He, he yeah. had to – you know, he's probably pure talent, top 20, top 10. But he, you know, he got, he reached his ceiling, right? And most you. of us don't even get close to our ceiling. But anyway, go ahead. I got you. I, I would, I would get behind that. I mean, obviously, he wasn't like a dominant college basketball player either. I mean, he's pretty good. He's the third pick in the draft. But yeah, um, right. he, he, he got better every year as he as he went along. So was that um, guy the Pistons drafted out of Eastern Europe? What was it? Milo, um, Darko, Darko Milicic. Milicic. Yeah, yeah. He was also the third pick in the draft. So. Uh, yes. Yes. There have been some. Not every third sure. pick in the draft is. A, yeah. Right. I hear you. Um, I don't necessarily have like a Jordan moment, but when you ask, when you say that, I do remember my dad printed out top 100 basketball players in Illinois when I was in like eighth grade. Somehow there's an eighth grade ranking for top 100 basketball players in Illinois. Who's scouting eighth graders and giving them one to 100 beats me. Uh, but I was like 94th on the list or something like that, just for an AAU basketball. And I remember, remember my dad like highlighted it and was, you know, was like, this is cool. You're on the list. Um, I didn't just want to be like 94 on the list. I mean, I wanted to be the best basketball player in the state of Illinois. Um, and I don't know. I, I I didn't like necessarily use that as motivation. I didn't get cut. I always was good. At, I always was a good basketball player. Um, 
but I just, my dad printed off that same sheet every year. Uh, and it was pretty cool where at the end of it, um, you know, I was, I was the Gatorade player of the year in the state of Illinois, my senior year. Um, and I had colleges that wanted me to go play for them, which was something that, you know, I wanted my entire life. Um, so it was just, it was just a little piece of motivation that I still remember today, 30 years old. I I remember my dad printing that out. I remember where I was when he showed it to me. It didn't like, it's not like I had it, you know, taped to the fridge and looked at it every day, but I remember it now when you asked me like, what's a piece of motivation that you carried with you for a while and what helped you compete every single day? So like, you know, what's interesting I think is, is most, most people go through their early lives and they're just kind of finding their way in terms of motivation, in terms of, um, you know, who they are and personal identity. Certainly there are lots of people who are high performer performers in, in different ways. That's just natural ability. So, you know, but you, you just highlighted, Hey, I was a pretty good basketball player, but I was motivated to be better. Where do you think that came from? Like what, where do you think that drive came and how did you kind of avoid, you know, the, the burnout that might come with just being a kid and loving hoops, but feeling this pressure to perform in something that you love. Right. Cause you weren't just going to play pickup. Like you were trying to win. I, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I love competing. I, I am a super competitive individual. Um, if I'm playing anything, I'm playing to win against my mom, against my wife, against my grandma. I mean, I want to win. Um, I just so I you guys don't love... play Monopoly at your house, I'd imagine. If we're playing Monopoly, I'm playing to win. And like, yeah, I'm but, just, then, but somebody you know. gets stabbed if you're playing Monopoly and somebody's playing to win against grandma. Yes, but like I'm trading, you know, if if you've got one or two houses and monopoly and you're in trouble, I'm exploiting you. Like I'm not going to play the nice card and give you a little monopoly over in the corner that you have a chance. No, I'm just I'm taking your your chips and I'm trying to win the game. Um but I don't know. I think that's my my parents thing. My mom is like a, my mom my mom is like a problem with how competitive she is where she'll like she'll like motherfuck me if we're playing go fish and 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 she loses she'll and she'll be pissed off about it. Um, so I don't know. I just like was I grew up in that type of atmosphere where my parents always competed with each other and uh, pushed me to compete. And it didn't matter what I was doing, basketball or whatever. I just I love playing sports. I love competing. I love trying to win. I love trying to be the best in, in everything that I did. I think that's just the way I was raised. And I, I fell short a lot, but um, it was still fun competing, winning, losing and learning from it. How did you deal with it? Like when you did fall short, right? I mean, I think there's there's a concept here that that I think is interesting. Golf's a great example of this. I feel like, you know, golf is such a frustrating sport because the better you get, like there's no perfection in golf, you know, and there's no perfection in any sport really. But like, if you hit 70% from three, you're like, holy shit, this is amazing. And, you know, but, but the, you know, the better you get, the further you feel from perfection sometimes. Right. And so like I played basketball all growing up, but like, you know, I'm, I'm only six foot three. And and I'm fat, so I was playing down low at six foot three. I just played it because I loved it. And I played basketball every day through high school, through college, through law school, like, you know, whatever that is, 11 straight years, I played basketball every single day. And it was just, but it was fun. There was nothing tied up into it. And I love to compete too, right? So I didn't even like to lose then. But regardless, like I'd play for six hours and I'd play, you know, whatever, 
25 games in six hours. But, you know, so so when you did kind of fall short or when you did fail, did that feel worse because you were a high performer? I, I guess you don't have a counterfactual, but, you know, how did that how did that feel? How did you deal with it? And, and kind of like, did that motivate you more? Did it did it, how did you take the sting off? You know, what are some of the ways you work through that? So I think um, the biggest – so I think I failed as a college basketball player, um, at least from what I wanted to do. So our team was great. Because you wanted to go to Michigan State. How did it feel when Michigan State maybe didn't uh, – you know, didn't really want you? They didn't ever I'm just want kidding. me, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I mean, they didn't ever want me, um, but that's whatever. I um, – <laughs> I expected you to have been like I expected that to be like joke banter, like you being like, "Oh yeah, haha." Izzo really wanted me, but Beeline wanted me more. I mean, Beeline did a great job building that program. Yeah, no, I mean, Izzo never offered me though, so I couldn't use that one as a as a joke. But um, I mean, I, I think the best example for me is my freshman and my senior year in college. I didn't play, uh, and I never had that before. Where uh, if I was on a team. Almost always, I was I was playing. I was usually the, the best player on a basketball team when I was growing and up. You were Mr. Basketball in Illinois, yeah. I wasn't Mr. Basketball. I won like Gatorade, 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 Gatorade Player of the Year. Brandon Paul, who went to Illinois, won Mr. Basketball. But uh, and I think he plays for the Spurs now or somewhere overseas. But um, I, I I was usually the best player on my team. And and then mm-hmm. freshman year in in you know, um, Michigan was really good and I didn't play. I played four or five minutes a game. Same with my senior year. Uh, and as a sophomore and a junior in junior, I played probably 15 minutes a game. Uh, depends if I made my first shot, beeline would leave me out there to like try and see if I was hot that game and, you know, play maybe 20, 22 minutes. If I, if I, you know, hit two or three, uh, if I missed my first shot, I'm probably paying, playing eight, seven, eight minutes that game. Um, and that was hard for me to adjust to, where you go? Did from you think about the- that at the time? No. So you didn't. I mean, no. But at the time, like, let me, like, in the time that you just said, if I hit my first shot, he'd leave me in. If he, did you go into a game like kind of thinking in that paradigm? Hey, I know that he's looking to see if I'm going to be hot or not. Not at first. I don't okay. think. Probably because I was a little naive, and you know, I was a sophomore, twenty years old, and just, um, I, I, you know, I, I still. Had, had a ton of, a ton of confidence in myself and I still did throughout the course of my basketball career, but it just, it just, you know, I don't know, it dawned on me a little bit. And yeah, when I was checking in, you know, sometimes it was, Hey, I got to make an impact right away or this is going to be quick. Um, and it's hard to play up to your capabilities when like that is your thought process. Um, I just wasn't as confident as I was when I was the best player on my basketball team in high school uh, where you know, going into a game, I could feel it out for a couple minutes and I still knew I was going to shoot 15 or 20 times and uh, just mm-hmm. see what was happening and get comfortable and get confident in the game situation. Instead, uh, and a failure when I was in, in college is I'd, I'd come out and I thought it was one shot. And sometimes I wasn't always my AAU coach. This is a tangent here. My AAU coach used to this say, is what we're here for. He used to say, shoot it like you mean it. Uh, his name was Nate Pomaday. He's an, he was an assistant coach. I don't know exactly where he is now, but he would always say, shoot it like you mean it. Um, and, and I think he really just meant like shoot it with confidence and, and go up there and shoot it like you're going to make it every single time. And, you know, I still was a, 
I still was a solid three point shooter in college, my sophomore and junior year. I, I, I probably made over a third of them, 30, 35 to 38% in those two years when I was playing. Um, but, but I should have, I should have shot a lot better because I wasn't always shooting it like I meant it. Cause there was just a little part of me that was like, Hey, I got to make my first one or I'm not playing again, or um, I'm not the best player on the mm-hmm. team here. I'm kind of sitting in as a role player and I wasn't as confident in the situation as I needed to be. And looking back on it, I know that now, and obviously I can't rewrite the script, but um, I think I, I think I failed in that. I should have just gone in with a slightly different attitude, but it's hard when, when you know that is your role on the team and you need to adapt to that or, um, or, or it's not going to work mm-hmm. out. Um, and so I, I left, I think I left a little bit out there just in the way my, in the way my headspace was going into every game, just on what my role was on the team. So when you say, hmm. when you say kind of failure, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily fail. Our teams were great. Uh, I played, I, you know, I played 15 minutes a game. My sophomore, junior year, I had a ton of fun. We lost in the national championship my senior year, but I think I could have been a better college basketball player had, if I had a better if I was more mature, if I knew my role a bit more, and if I was able to kind of wipe off the thought process of, man, I'm the I'm the sixth, seventh, eighth guy on the team. Uh, you said imposter syndrome type thing. Like, you know, there's five guys that are better than me that should be on the court right now. I'm kind of out here not shooting it like I mean it. I'm not playing aggressively. I'm not playing to win every situation. Some situations I'm just trying to blend in. And if you play like that or you act like that every day, I don't think you get the maximum capability out of yourself. If you're kind of trying to blend into the situation instead of trying to attack the situation and make an impact and play the game like you know how to play the game. So I think I failed from a mindset mindset standpoint in some instances, just given my role on the team. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, you won sixth man of the year, right, in 2012, your sophomore year. I was – so it's interesting to hear you say like, hey, I feel like I failed in some respects because, I mean, you played for a major program. It's not, I mean, you played in a major conference, right? You played D1, high D1. You, I mean, the Big Ten, you played for one of the marquee programs in the Big Ten at its height with Beeline. I mean, you know, during this, yeah. you know, since the early 90s, right? I mean, and maybe not today with Juwan Howard's doing with the program. Yeah. I mean, you know, they still won't unseat Michigan State, but you get what I'm saying. You know, that's that's incredible, right? And then you go out there and it's you know, you 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 are able to make the squad, you're able to get on the floor, you're able to get on the floor at all. I mean, there were guys who you probably played with at Michigan who never saw the floor, right? And and so that you were able to get to be a sixth man of the year in those in that situation to still hear you say you questioned kind of your role, you didn't play the game necessarily like you meant it all the time. It's it's really interesting. How did you, I mean, how did you keep going? A lot of guys in those situations might have transferred, right? I mean, they might have said, even then without the transfer portal, they might have said, you know what? I want to go somewhere where I can be the guy. I want to go somewhere where I can get 30 minutes a game and I can get my 25 shots. I can get lathered up. I can get hot. You know, but you didn't do that. What got you through? I can't say I never thought about doing that. Um, sure. I did. Um, I think at one point my dad actually suggested I, I transfer. Um, 
I, I, I could have done that. I could have probably transferred and shot 20 times a game somewhere. Um, but I also love the people I played with and, and, mm-hmm. you know, respected the hell out of my coach, uh, who, you know, I mean, he was always honest with me and, and I made a commitment to him to come in and try to change a culture and build a program from nothing. When I got there my freshman year, Michigan basketball, the, when I committed, when I was 17 years old, Michigan basketball hadn't been in the tournament for a long time. Um, and, you know, and, and they hadn't, they hadn't performed in 10, 15, 20 years and Beeline moved jobs to come build this program into a winning I'm going to win big 10 championships and I'm going to win a national championship. I mean, that's what he told me on my recruiting visit. And and I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to build something from the ground up and kind of reset the script of, of, of mm-hmm. Michigan basketball. Um, and I think everybody that, that played basketball in, in his, in the beeline era probably got that same pitch from him and like mm-hmm. come in and help us build a program or rebuild a program that should be, you know, one of the powerhouses in the big 10 and hasn't been for quite some time. And just because I wasn't the best player on the team um, didn't mean to me, like I would have been more of a failure if I transferred than if I, than if I took my, you know, six man in 2012 and uh, I was the seventh man on the team in, in the, the year after my junior year, I would have been more of a failure if I packed it up and said, Hey guys, I know we put in three years of work. Uh, we haven't hit our goal yet. We haven't won a national championship yet. I'm out of here. Um hmm. I don't know. I just, I, I love the people I worked with and played with every day. I love competing with those guys and I didn't want to bail. Um, I wanted to see it through and just be the best in my individual role. Even if that role wasn't, you're the best player on the team, you're going to shoot 20 shots a game. I wanted to add every, I wanted to add every ounce of value to see it through end to end. Um, mm. And I am, I am proud of myself for doing that and not transferring because I did think about it. Um, and and I, I respect I respect the hell out of Beeline too, because he always shot me straight. Like even my senior year, one of the hardest meetings I had with him, one of the hardest meetings I had with him was I started the first five games my senior year. Um, and a guy named Karis Levert was redshirting as a freshman. And we were good. We were ranked 10th in the country, maybe fifth in the country at the time. And, you know, Beeline called me in his office five games into the year and, I think, you know, I was playing 15 minutes a game and Nick Stauskas, who also was in the NBA and also was a lottery pick, was coming off the bench. Uh, and Beeline just sat me down and was like, I, I, I know this is your senior year. You've put three and a half years into this program. Um, Karis and Nick are better than you. And like that was hard to hear when I'm, I'm I, mm-hmm. this is my last year to play college basketball. That was hard to hear, but he was right. I mean, they were they were lottery picks. They were, you know, Karras is making millions of dollars in the NBA today, and he's he's an incredible basketball player, and so was Nick, and it was the best move for the team. Uh, but I respect Beeline, you know, now still the fact that he sat me down, did what was best for the 15 guys on that team, and made the best basketball move and shot me straight about it. Um, it's interesting. You know, I've always kind of been curious about this, you know, and, 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 uh, everybody I know, I don't not I'm not, I don't know a bunch of like NFL stars or whatever, but I, you know, I, several of my friends have played high level sports and I've always asked them sort of like what it was like when that comes to an end, because you play at such a high level, you're so motivated for such a long time and so many, 
every athlete, their career, you know, 95% of them, their career ends, bec- not their choice, right? Like Tom Brady is probably one of the only guys, you know, Peyton Manning, John Elway, some of those folks, uh, uh, they're the, the, you know, they're, they're the, they're the exception there. Tim Duncan, you know, that their career ends because they're ready for it to end and not because, and, and there's so many hall of famers. I'll never forget Derek Brooks for the Buccaneers, right? Growing up Tim Bay Buccaneers fan, Derek Brooks gets cut by the Bucks and everybody's pissed about it and whatever. And he never got a sniff anywhere else. He, he's a hall of famer. One of the best to ever do it. So what was it, you know, this is the last thing we'll kind of talk about in this and we can move on. Yeah, a lot of sports career, here, but, but it's cool. But it's just, it's, it's very interesting because it's such an intersection of, of career. And yeah. um, what was it like having that kind of end? Okay, senior day, we, we're good. we go to the tournament, we play in the national championship game. By the way, you lose the national championship, that was Louisville, I think, yeah. right? If I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. And that was it, you're up big, Louisville comes back, right? And, uh, you know, now all this, so like you, you're the biggest stage last game of the year, you know, and now, and now it's all over. It's all over. It's not your choice. What's that? I mean, how does that feel like failure? Does that, do you feel, you know, blessed that you had the ride and how did you kind of turn that around and say, okay, like now I got to go be somebody, I got to go be a regular person. Yeah, I mean, if you will. Yes, it, that sucked. We were the better team in my opinion. We, we play that game 10 times. We win eight. Um, so that sucked. Did it feel like failure? No. I mean, no. I mean, we made it to the brink and like reset mm-hmm. the Michigan basketball program and we lost in a, a, in a good game, uh, a real good game mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, it, I, I don't know if it still does, but at one point it definitely doesn't now that that Villanova guy hit the game winner against Carolina, but at one point had like the best – the best ratings for a game. We played our asses off and uh, mm-hmm. it didn't feel like a failure. It sucked to not be able to practice again and play basketball again. Um, you know, but I think I had a little bit of a different perspective on it, probably given that what I just said earlier about, you know, Karis and Nick and, and Beeline sat me down game six and kind of said, you're not going to play much anymore. Um, so that kind of was when my career, you know, it, it wasn't like I still was practicing every day. I still competed my ass off in practice to try to make those guys better. Um, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't getting meaningful minutes in a basketball game, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, anymore. And, um, it, it did, the, the shitty part was not being able to compete anymore and instead trying to reset my life to say like, what's next? Um, mm-hmm. cause, cause I, I, all I knew was wake up, go to class, go compete, go Who? compete and practice every day, watch film, um, yeah. And run it back and, and try to win basketball games. Like that's all I knew. So it was hard to reset my my script to say like what's next for me here. I'm actually really glad that that's the perfect transition. I'm so glad I asked that question because part of what made me create this podcast was going through exactly that journey myself. Not necessarily going from obviously not going from being an athlete to being a professional necessarily, but for me, you know, I got out of law school you know my story. And I think a lot of people who do this, I get out of law school. It's middle of 2009. I can't get anybody to talk to me. I got to go be a freight broker. And that was, you know, that felt like failure. It felt awful. And I had to reset myself. And then, you know, going through my career, I build some businesses, I have some success, you know, and then I leave my last business um, where it, you know, everything's mutual until it's not right. 
we, t- you know, we had talked about me moving on and then they decided today I was going to move on when I thought we were talking about a couple weeks from now or a couple months from now. So I went through this journey of having to say, I just want to talk to everybody I can to figure out how they've dealt with failure, how they've dealt with imposter, how they dealt with some of these feelings that I've been feeling for years. So I think that's a great transition. How did you go through that process? What was that like for you? How did you figure that out? Or are you still figuring it out now? Probably still figuring it out now to some extent. Um, but I don't know. I was, I was, I was probably immature at the time. Still am. I just, I tried to, yeah, you definitely yeah, are. I mean, I just, I was trying to, I, I just, I don't know. I always had that, like, I'm going to compete every single day. I still do. And I try to transition that into work. And instead it wasn't, I'm going to play basketball and try to win basketball games and, and um, compete and practice every day. It was like, I want to, I want to learn everything I can. I want to make as much money as I can. I want to set my family up for success and, that's what motivated me. I mean, it still does motivate me today to some extent, not so much, you know, I said, make, make as much money as I can. Like, yeah, that still motivates me. I want to make as much money as mm-hmm, possible. Sure. I want to make a ton of money and set my family up for success. But, um, you know, I've, I've, I've realized it's, it's more than that building this place and, and working with the people that I work with, but for, you know, from, out of school, it was, how do I make as much money as possible as quickly as possible? That was my new mindset when I was 22 years old. I'm not going to the NBA. Mm. I'm not going to go play overseas basketball. I'm not good enough to make a bunch of money doing that. How do I use my competitive energy, everything I've learned and go try to make as much money as I can in a career? Um, And Mm. I I probably still haven't figured out exactly what I want to do with my life now that basketball is behind me. Um, you know, I play in Sunday rec leagues and stuff, but it's just not the same thing. Um, and now I just want to, you know, be a, a, a great father in June, be a good husband and make as much money as I can for my family and try to create as much opportunity for people as I can along the way. Do you want money? Like, you know, I think that's really interesting. And, and money obviously is a motivator for lots of people. It's certainly a motivator for me. Um, I'm always curious as to like, what does money mean to you? Is it, you know, is it, yeah, let me just leave it at that. What what does that mean to you? Like, why is that such a motivator? What does it do for you? It's a good question. I don't know. Like, I honestly don't, okay. I, I honestly don't know the answer. And I didn't That's mean funny. to sound like an asshole when I said, hey, when I, it's just for whatever reason, these NBA, you know, my whole life I wanted to play in the NBA. Uh of course. Yeah. In college, obviously, I realized that wasn't happening. I just, I'm not an NBA basketball player, unfortunately. Um, and unfortunately for both yeah, of us, I, mean, I wish. Um, I'd love to be having an NBA basketball player on this podcast. I wasn't good enough. And, uh, yeah. you know, fair enough. I, I, re- I, you know, I realized that. And now it's, and after school, it was okay. If I can't make a ton of money playing basketball, which is what I know how to do. I want to go make a ton of money and make a name for myself in an in industry or in business and make, you know, my family proud and, and make sure that everybody else is comfortable and stable. Um, I, I've kind of flipped that script a bit at, at Molo. Just, I don't think money's everything anymore. I think the people that I work with and creating opportunity for all of these people is more important to me than that. But anyway, I mean, that was my mindset when I, when I graduated is what, what's, how do I want to sell and the reason I want to learn how to sell is because I think that's how you make the most money. I want to go. Be, I want to go become a salesman. I went and worked at IBM. I sold. I learned how to sell. I got in front of a customer, and I, I tried to, um, 
you know, just, just make as much money as possible, which wasn't the right attitude, but I was 22 years old at the time and kind of an idiot. So that's where my head turned when basketball ended. Um, money is not, you know, the only motivator for me, but it, I think for people, it is a sense of stability and you can do whatever you want. And, you know, you, you having a, having a kid in June too, it's, it's, uh, I want to create the best situation for, for him. And, um, you know, my wife. Oh, it's a boy. Well, More breaking boy. news. And my wife and, and the yeah. people I care about. Congratulations. Um, you know, but it, it's not a money thing as much anymore as it was when I was 22, I guess is the point I'm getting at. But I, 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 you've evolved past money to you at 22 meant optionality. It meant being able to, you know, provide flexibility for yourself, for your, for your family, whatever. It still means the same thing in a manner of speaking. It sounds like it's just expanded, right? Now you will, you kind of incorporate the Molo, you know, your Molo teammates that you've created this company where, where that the money that you're helping to generate or the money that you're getting out of this is really just derivative of the opportunity that you've created. You've expanded that kind of net. It sounds like, was that a fair way to summarize yeah, it? I mean, when I started Molo, the my to be honest my initial goal was one to build a build a great company but two to make as much money as possible along the way and and create a big profitable business that you know i'm going to make a bunch of money from and i don't think that's i don't i know i don't have the same motivation today i mean i still want to make a ton of money i still want to build a massively profitable business that but i want to create that opportunity for everybody and i think what gain what i get more satisfaction from is when somebody calls me or slacks me and says, you know, I um, I bought an engagement ring for my fiance and it never would have been possible if I didn't get that commission check from Molo. Like that, is, that shit is cool. Like that shit is fun to hear. Um, I'm sensitive, so I might start like crying on this interview. But if I if I went through those, yeah, I hope you do. Went, that's that's what I define success. If as, I went, is getting people to cry. I, yeah, well, I I I was close a couple times earlier. Um, but I could tell. But that shit's cool. When someone calls me and says like, this changed my life or, um, you know, I'm doing this for my family. I love the environment you've created. I can work my ass off here and make a lot of money. Um, I need this job and thank you so much for, for building the culture you have or creating the opportunity. Like that is way more, I, I never even realized that was possible. And that like these people could, we could all work together and bring each other together and create opportunity for each other, whether that's, a commission check for someone and money for someone or a manager job for somebody that really just wants to lead and mold people um, or someone starts their own department and wants to learn and just, just learn as much as they can about the industry. And that's what motivates them. That is the, that's cool about starting a business that's growing as quickly as we are, where we're able to give that opportunity to people every single day. That shit now is what motivates me more than money. Why Molo? Like why, why was, you know, you, you didn't, you didn't come from, I mean, you worked at IBM. Like what? I mean, sure. You, you met Andrew in college, but, but why Molo? Why was Molo the the thing that you thought was going to be your vehicle for achieving any of these things? That is a, that is a question that I don't even know the answer to uh, fully, but I will try to answer it. I, I was at an inflection point in my life where I was complaining, you know, I, I oversaw a region within IBM's book. I didn't know the people that I worked with though. And I didn't 
care about the people that I worked with. That may sound harsh, but I just, I didn't know their kids. I didn't know what they mm-hmm. liked. I hardly met them because there's 400,000 people at the company. I mean, great company. I learned a ton from it, but you know, you're calling people and, and emailing people and you're not like forming a connection with people. You're not competing and trying mm-hmm. to win with people every single day. It was more of an individual type of role. I was complaining to my wife every day and just, I, I didn't wake up excited to get out of bed and go to work in the morning. I, I woke up and didn't, mm, and I just didn't want to do anything. I just didn't want to go to work. I wanted to call in sick pretty much every day when I was 26, 27 years old. I thought there has to be more to a job than this. Like, yes, I'm making money, mm-hmm. I'm selling. I, I learned a lot along the way, but this isn't what work should be. Like, I shouldn't wake up and hate yeah. what I'm coming in to do and not be motivated and not competing and not be challenging myself. And I kind of, you know, that was hoops for me for the first 22 years also. So it's like, where did that go? This sucks. Yeah. Uh, I'm just complacent right now. And, you know, I, I talking to people in freight and, and it maybe it could have been selling bricks or cement or whatever. I don't know. But it was it in talking to people, it was like, this doesn't seem this seems it's a complicated job getting something from point A to point B and connecting all the dots along the way. Something goes wrong every day. Something goes wrong every every or most shipments, and you have to deal with chaos along the way and make it as as efficient and seamless and and service the heck out of everybody along the way. But um, it didn't seem impossible either. It's not like we were it's mm-hmm. not like it was mm-hmm. rocket science. We weren't like reinventing something. Um, and it seemed and for a machine grad, that's important. I, I'm can't. not. Yeah, rocket science is going to be too much for y'all. Really? Yeah, definitely. I'm not a rocket science guy. Um, a lot of Michigan engineers are, but like, you yeah, know, I was. More- yeah, but they're the ones that crash the probe into Mars, not the ones that actually get it to land. So yeah, All for right. sure. Hey, whatever. But um, it just it seemed like there were a lot of folks in this industry that were potentially misguided in the way that they were going to market every day. Not everybody, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I kind of saw it a little bit at IBM in that if you lose the buy-in from all 400,000 people, either because you get too big or you're publicly traded or, or whatever, um, it's really hard to make a massive impact on the industry. And it seemed like mm-hmm. a, lot of the, a lot of competitors in the transportation industry either were tech first, tech always, tech only people at the very bottom end of the spectrum or um, were profit first, profit second, profit third, everybody else at the end of at the bottom end of the barrel. Mm -hmm. Um, And in talking to people and just always being interested in starting and building my own company, it was, hey, if we lead with people and if we lead with service, and we lead with culture and the way that, you know, bringing a, a winning culture and our values to the table, that alone will make an impact on this industry because it's missing people that that do that every single day. And then we'll layer in really quality technology. Um, we have a plan for how we're going to do that, but we're going to always lead with people, always lead with our values and always lead with service. I believed in that. I mean, when I was talking to people and they were mm-hmm. like, it seems like folks have lost their way a little bit. I was picking up what they were putting down. I was like, yeah, we can make an impact doing that. I agree. If that's how everybody else operates, it doesn't seem like, again, rocket science to to follow through on that every single day. Um, 
and people probably thought I was crazy quitting my job and starting a freight brokerage with no freight experience. Uh, I know my, my parents probably thought I was an idiot. Um, but again, I believed in that concept that like people win, people will always win. A culture will win. And if you service the heck out of your drivers and your customers, you can build a scalable business that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that, you know, we had the right team off, off the jump. And I think we have the right team now that we could make everything else seamless, efficient along the way. So we could make that, that concept profitable. Um, that's why I quit my job. It wasn't because I was a freight savant and I, you know, was going to come in here and massively change everything. I just believed in that premise and those values. Well, it sounded like, I mean, the really, the reason you left your job wasn't necessarily for Molo specifically. It was because you just wasn't fulfilling you. I remember, you know, your, your conversation about complaining to your wife, I'll never forget. I said to my wife one time, many years ago now, I don't have to be a person. This is a direct quote. I don't have to be a person who wakes up every day and says, fuck, yes, I get to go to work. But I have to be a person that doesn't wake up every day and says, fuck, I have to go to work. Right. I mean, and so like underlying that kind of kick in the pants, regardless of what it was going to be next, was that kind of, uh, you know, lack of fulfillment in what it was today. And then Molo specifically you know, it's probably, you know, there's, there's the Lake Forest element, there's the, the silver element, you know, and just in terms of it being a business that you're familiar with, um, even if you had never done it yourself. So, I mean, I think that certainly makes sense. You've talked, you know, you've talked about how you've grown and matured in your kind of thought process of, of, of failure and of, of success particularly, but probably also of failure. You know, what... You've also talked about the, you know, what Molo means today in terms of the the team members and how much that means to you that you've created that environment. What would it mean if, if what, you know, today as compared to when you started? I want you to juxtapose them. What would it mean if Molo had failed when you started? Or what would it mean if Molo failed today in your mind? When I started, it was probably the expectation that we were going to fail. Um, and so I don't think it would have, I, I, I can't say I went into Molo July, 2017, never moved a load in my life. Didn't know what a lumper was, um, with 110% confidence that this business was going to be successful. And I would, I would be in freight for the next 20 years of my life. Like there's no way, um, I was, I was. I think I learned from, you know, to bring it back to the hoops piece that I think I learned not just to that that you don't play as well when you just try to blend in. And I was going to attack the situation, even when I was uncomfortable, even when I didn't know everything that I was going to pick up the phone and talk to a driver or talk to a shipper and say something stupid and learn from it and move on and attack the next day or the next call Mm -hmm. differently. I came in with that mindset, but there's no way I could have told you I'm 110% certain that we, we're going to succeed here. Um, mm. And so I love that evolution of that thought. I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to jump in quickly because I love the evolution of that thought process. You know, I've always, I've kind of said in hoops, whether it's pop a shot or regular hoops, it's, you know, when you miss a shot, it's not about the last one, it's about the next one, right? It doesn't matter that I just missed that, you know, I, I missed the same spot, same situation. It's about this shot, not about that last shot. And, you know, it sounds, you know, what you just kind of described about your evolution was at the beginning, you know, in, when you were in college, 
you were trying to blend in or what have you. And now, you know, and once you got to the stage where you were starting Molo, you said, hey, I'm not going to make that same mistake again. I'm going to attack the situation. I'm going to shoot it like I mean it. And and like, it's okay. Micro failures are okay. It's not about the last call. It's about the next call. If I make myself look like an idiot to a driver, if I treat him with respect, if I'm, you know, if I, if I do the right things as a human being, who cares if I look like an idiot? I say all the time, like, one of my superpowers is I'm just not afraid to be wrong. Like, it's not that I'm that smart. It's not that I know anything that anybody else doesn't know. I'll just say what the fuck ever. Because if I'm wrong and we find out later I was wrong, I'll say, cool, I was wrong about that. Like, let's move on. And, and, I, and I love how you laid that out. So what would, you know, what would Molo mean if you failed today? Um, completely different than, you know, four years ago where I don't think failure is an option today. I mean, just with what I've, what I've been through, the people I've, I've been with along the way, the lives we've impacted, the work we've put in, I don't think we can fail. Just I, I, I refuse to not come in and bust my ass every day to make sure that this works. You made me cry. What does success look like? You made me cry. That was mean. Good. Uh, what does success look like? Man, um, I don't know the answer to that. So I would have said something different. I would have said something different four years ago. Uh, again, you know, success success would have been – success would have been come in, start a business with – hire as many people as possible – have somebody come in and, and buy us, make money. See you later. Um, that probably that's what I would have answered success as. Um, obviously, not see you later. Got to keep you know, got to yeah. see it all the way through and um, whatever. But that probably would have been my answer today. The reason I say I don't know is I think there is so much meat on the bone of what we're doing here. I mean, we're still young. We still are hiring twenty mm-hmm. people a month. We still are not perfect, but we have 350 people that bust their asses every single day and mm-hmm. want to make this thing work. Um, we are not, you know, we're not as consistent as developed. We don't have the processes that we need. Our technology isn't as, as, as great as it needs to be uh, for us to be as impactful in this industry as I think we can be. Um, I said, I don't know, but I just wanted to elaborate a bit simply because we are not as mature of a business as we need to be. We are hiring 20 people a month. Our processes, our technology, our freight IQ, everything is, is not, we're not perfect. Um, but we do have 350 people that bust their ass for this place and want to work extremely hard for the person on their left, the person on their right. These days, the person across the Zoom, whatever. Like it's, we started this business the right way. We have the infrastructure which I think is the people and the culture. Um, and we get an opportunity from a customer at 8, 9 p.m. at night. You know, Andrew or a seller or myself or whatever jumps into the, the company-wide Slack and says, hey, I need a truck at 11 p.m. Is anybody online to help? Mm-hmm. You get 15 responses. You get 20 responses. Yeah. And like that to me is – that's how you build – we've got this this group of people that is a machine that wants to work together and, and refuses to fail the same way that I got choked up when you asked me, like, is failure an option? We have people that care about this place and care about mm-hmm. each other. 
to the point where they're fired up to come to work every day. So what does success look like? I don't know. It's just continuing to see what we can build together because we're nowhere near done, what opportunity we can create for each other um, and make, I do think we can make a, a massively, a massive impact on this industry. And we're just like, we're just getting started. It's maybe a cliche thing to say as we're four years old and we are moving a lot of freight, but um, you know, we, we, we're just getting right around to the second bid cycle with a lot of our shippers. And they're like, Oh shit, you guys followed through with what you said you were going to. We, we like working with you. How mm-hmm. do we, we double down on that? How do we triple down on that? Um, and we're just getting people that, that have gone through uh, an annual freight cycle and know how the markets work and are picking up their freight IQ and are learning how to handle all the chaos that happens every single day within freight. So I just, I think we have, a lot of meat on the bone. I think we have a lot of room to grow as a company, as individuals, as people. And so I don't know what success looks like today. I just, I think we have, um, we, we couldn't be in a better position to grow as a company and grow as a team. Yeah. I mean, you continue to, you continue to add great people when you keep doing that too, like Tyson Wimberly, who you guys just added, um, who I think the world of. So, um, you know, and you, you, Andrew's come up a couple of times, Andrew Silver. Um, and Andrew Silver is the CEO, but Andrew Silver wasn't there when you started the business. And so, you know, it's it's interesting that you sort of seeded the ultimate leadership, if you will, of the business. I mean, you and Andrew are, in, in my yeah. experience of having worked with you guys in lockstep and, and, and joined at the hip. But, you know, in many ways, you seeding the seat, you know, that, that title, giving somebody that title when you were the president, when you were running the company to allow somebody else to come in and be CEO. Before I met Andrew, I actually thought Andrew and I would be like cats and dogs. I, I had this concept that Andrew and I would be like cats and dogs. And Andrew and I have gotten to be pretty good friends. Like, I mean, you know, we, we text all of the time and we, we joke around and Andrew's a, Andrew has this, and I want to have him on here, as you know, and, and we've talked about you know, Andrew has this persona, uh, but underlying all of that is a lot of the things that you've just talked about, the care and the, 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 the love that he has for other people, for this business, because of what it does for other people. That's all very real. And, and you get past some of that other, other stuff um, and see him for who he is at his core, you understand that public persona a lot better. And, and so, you know, but, but, and, and that's, that does factor into my point about you kind of being willing to say somebody else, somebody else can be on my level, right? Somebody else can be up here with me in that C-suite. Somebody else can be the CEO. A lot of, a lot of leaders in the businesses would feel like that's a step back or a failure, um, and, and, and I, I don't, most people aren't willing to do that. And it's actually part of the reason I think sometimes their businesses suffer. Was it ever even a question for you when you and Andrew started talking about him joining Molo that, that you would be willing to do that? Did you ever struggle with that at all in terms of seating the, seating the, the, the throne, if you will? Um, I mean, I probably struggled with it, you know, here and there, but nothing, all that crazy. I mean, I think a, a big reason why is like, I didn't, again, I didn't have a freight background. Um, I still don't know everything that I need to know. I mean, I learned something new. It feels like every day there's a new problem yeah. that happens in this business that I'm like, Oh shit. Well, how do we, so, let, let's go figure this one out together. Um, which is fun. It's a, that's a fun part of this business. Um, but 
I don't know. I'm going to relate this back to basketball, I guess. I mean, I've always, I've I learned how to know my role and know what's best for the team. And you adapt into your role and you do what's best for the team, for the team to win. And in my opinion, Andrew is our CEO uh, with the background that he has, with the freight experience that he has, with, you know, just the way that the silver name and he carries himself within freight was the best move for our company. Uh, it mm-hmm. will be every single day. And so it's just kind of um, knowing your role, adapting to your role and doing what's best for the team, no matter what. And it's it's bigger than me. It's bigger than my ego. Uh, and you have to check that out the door if you're going to build something successful and and create an opportunity for everyone and create a place that everybody you know, calls a home away from home and comes in and competes for every single day. So it raises the ceiling for everybody is what you're saying, right? I mean, yes. And so, I don't know. I just, uh, so it, that is kind of the way I looked at it that like, Hey, Andrew is our CEO is the best move for our business. It will always mm-hmm. be the best move for all, our business. And, um, you know, if you, if I, if I let that be, in, if I let my ego get in the way and can't accept that, then, I'm the problem, not the situation, um, because everybody else is better off with Andrew as our CEO. And, and that's the way that our company is put in the best position to win and to succeed and to grow every day. Mm, I love the way you said that, too. I mean, you're the problem, not everyone else. A lot of, you know, there, there's an there's an agency there, right? Like I can I control what I control. And one of the things you control is your how you react to what's going on, how you, the decisions you make and whether or not you let ego get in the way of what's the best decision. If you do, right, then you're blaming your, and, and you blame other people for the suboptimal outcomes of that or other situations or whatever it might be. Then you're like, you're not controlling what you can control. You're not retaining that agency. You're just giving it up. All right, Matt, this, this is my last question for you. And I really appreciate you sharing the time. Um, you know, You've talked about your parents. You've talked about your wife and and your soon to be son. Outside of those folks, who do you want to be proud of you? Like, who do you you know? Is there somebody out there that you work? You know, when when you're kind of down in the dumps, or or you want to give up, or you're just tired that day, who do you look up to? And if they patted you on the back and said, "Hey, Vogridge, great fucking job today," it'd make you cry again. Yeah. Um... Man, I don't know. Hmm. I can't, I can't. So some of some of the role models in my life, obviously, I think my dad and, and John Beeline are the best two lead by example guys I've ever been around. Uh, Beeline was the most walk the line. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to hold the best player or the shittiest player th- accountable the exact same way and build a winning culture. Um, but I don't think beeline patting me on the back would, and saying like, good job today would really move the needle for me today. I think that, um, I think that the people that I work with, the people that I work with now and talk to every single day and come in and compete for and with, that's the recognition that I want. It's not, um, you know, my family is great. I want their appreciation and recognition too, for sure, uh, and my friends. But um, I think it's the people that I work with and, com- and compete with every day that I care more about. I want them to say, that motherfucker leads by example every day. Mm. That guy comes in and wants us all to be successful every day. Mm. 
I lied. This is my last question. You've talked in a couple of places about how you've been fortunate in your life and, and what have you. Do you think that where you are today? Try it again. It's great, man. This is great. Is I, I'm a, I'm a crier too, man. I like, I was talking to somebody earlier today. The first thing I did when I woke up on my wedding day was cry. There's a picture, cried the whole day. There's a picture of my wife walking down the aisle laughing and she's laughing because I'm standing there and I'm sobbing. Yeah. And I told her, I had told her 90 seconds before, I don't think I'm going to cry anymore. I think I'm all cried out. And then this, like, I just start sobbing like, you know, five seconds later and, and then she sees me. So it's great, man. I love that. So here's my question. And this will be, uh, this will be the last one. Um, you talked about how fortunate you are in a lot of respects. Uh, and, and you have been, um, and I, ha- and I, I have been in my life. So like your story really resonates with me in that, in that sense. Um, and, and, you know, do you feel like where you are today, it's more because you were lucky or it's more because you were just that good or that hardworking or whatever? Both. I mean, like you think it's 50, 50, you think it's like 60, 40. It's, it's, it's a lot. It's probably a lot more luck. I would think it's probably more luck than, than good. Um, but it's a combination of those two things. I mean, I, I, uh, so something that we, we did at Michigan and is a little corny. I don't know if I fully believe in it, but it's, uh, it's called the secret. We watched like a movie or read a book. Uh, and essentially it's, if you if you want something and you want your life to be some way, you got to visualize it and you have to almost write it down and go out and attack it every day. And if you do that, you will be shocked at where you end up. You know, if in a year you say, I want to own a home or in five years you say, I want to own a home a year, you want to own a car and you go out and make your actions represent that every day, you'll be shocked at where you end up and what you're able to realize. Um it's like Jim Carrey wrote himself a million dollar check when he was like broken homeless or something. You know that story? No, I don't. Yeah. But I mean, that it's the story. It's Same the, concept. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I'm going to make, I'm, I'm going to like will the universe to bring this back to me. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to understand what my goals are and I'm going to act a certain way every single day to do my best to make them come true. Um, no matter how big or small those goals are. And you know, I, I took that to heart to some extent. I've always wanted to, I've always been entrepreneurial. I've always wanted to start my own business. I've always wanted to create opportunity for others and myself. And, you know, I just have always been fascinated about doing that and felt compelled to do that and like competing and attacking every situation. Um, there's been a ton of luck along the way, but I do think part of it is just like having that Fault, you said false confidence earlier is one of your superpowers almost, and you like are and you're cool with being wrong. I didn't describe it as false confidence. I said I'm not afraid to be wrong. Yeah, whatever. But like same thing. Like you don't care if you're wrong. You're just gonna go out and say it. You're gonna attack that situation and, and you're gonna um you know roll your sleeves up and, and go to war and you're not gonna win every every battle, but like you're gonna you're gonna jump in and say I'm gonna give Sometimes this I'm gonna be wrong. Michael Jordan lives in Highland Park. Like great. He lives in Highland Park. Michael Jordan I wasn't always that I wasn't always that way. I had to learn to be that way. I mean, that's actually part of what I want to explore here and part of why I've done this podcast is I wanted to, I want to learn how other people have tackled these things. Cause when I was younger, man, it was, I was in high school. The worst thing in the world would have been for me, the worst thing in the world would have been to admit 
that I didn't know something. And now 75 times a day, you've experienced with me 75 times a day. I'm like, I don't know. Let me go ask somebody and get back to you. Like, I don't have to, I don't have all the fucking answers. I don't know, man. Like I, you asked me how many class eight trucks are on the road. Sure. I know. But if you ask me like how many, you know, how many ocean containers are sitting in the port of long beach, like, I don't, fucking no like that's somebody else's purview but no i mean i i i I think it's more i think it's more luck than good um but i i think it's more of an attitude thing than luck also so like i'm gonna Mm -hmm. flip your question a little bit to say it's more it's more of an attitude a false confidence a i'm gonna go out and give this i mean false confidence sounds harsh but you know what i mean just like i'm gonna go out and give this my everything I'm going to come in to work every morning, learn something new throughout the day. I'm going to lock into the best of my ability and and I'm going to grind and have fun along the way and and see what happens. Um, And that's, you know, the first day that I, that I walked into freight with, you know, Will and Stefan, it was, I don't know anything, but I'm Mm -hmm. tell me what to do and I'll do it and I'll try to learn and come in and provide more value the next day. Um, so that's luck and like the people that you're around and them lifting you up. But at the same time, it's just the willingness to, to fail, to miss and to shoot again and to, you know, shoot it like you shoot mean it. Like it. you mean it. Yeah. And, and there we go. Um, you bring that's the title. Forward. That's the title. Shoot it like you mean it. I, dude, I'm with you. I mean, it's like to your point about false confidence. I don't think that's the wrong term. It, you know, that's impo- imposter syndrome and getting over it for me was learning by talking to a number of people how many of them, how, like, you know, how much of their confidence that they exuded was false confidence was like, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to be proud and I'm going to, I'm going to not be afraid to be wrong. And I'm going to admit when I am wrong and those things. And I'm like, Oh shit. I mean, nobody really knows anything. Like it's all made up. Um, anyway, Matt, this is a great conversation. Thank you very much for sharing the time before I let you go. Where can anybody learn more about Molo or learn more about you? Me? I don't know. Text me. You got like, there's, there's nothing out there to learn more I mean, about. Maybe me. LinkedIn. Like I, you know, you, most people say LinkedIn or Twitter. No? LinkedIn. Just text I mean, you. Yeah. LinkedIn. Shipmolo.com is, is our kind of company website. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn is the easiest way to kind of uh, connect and also learn more about Molo and, uh, we post stories, wins, losses, yeah, and totally. local on LinkedIn too, telling stories about Molo. And um, so that's probably the best way to learn about us as a company and, and me and our story a little bit more. Right, text you. Great answer. I'll put your cell phone number in the show notes. Yeah, Bogris, you, probably, you probably should cut that. That was a scoop. Nope, it's, go, it's going in. <laughs> that one's going in. I'll cut some of the other stuff. Dude, cool. thanks. This was a ton of fun. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I've really enjoyed getting to know you before this. This was a lot of fun. I can't wait to get back up to Chicago and we can grab dinner or something. And, um, we'll talk again soon, my friend. Thanks a ton. Thanks brother. See you. Thanks for listening to this episode of inside the founder studio. A couple quick things before you go. We're proudly hosted on the logistics of logistics network to hear more content from the industry's top leaders in supply chain and logistics check out thelogisticsoflogistics.com. And until next time, onward and upward.